I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to catch up to you in a text in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2. As I said earlier in the service, today we're in the second part of a series we're calling Double Blessing, and I want to challenge you today to lean in with your heart to the blessing that God has in store for your life, God's purpose, God's plan is to pour out blessing on his people and through his people to bless the world. Now, I don't know where you stand on the spectrum of feeling blessed. Let me tell you, by saying God wants to double bless your life, I'm not saying you're going to end up on any Forbes list. If you do, praise God, continue to tithe. <laughs> I'm not saying you're going to get a, a new car or that, that you're going to receive anonymous checks in the mail. Now, God works in mysterious ways, and he blesses us in creative means. But I'm talking about something deeper than your finances today, though it would be remiss of us to not include that in our response to what God is saying. As we read in the scripture earlier in Genesis, God promised he'd bless Abraham. He said he'd pour his blessing out on his life, and he said, the reason I'm blessing you is so that I can bless others through you. Now, in 2 Kings, there's a story that we looked at last weekend about two men, the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. And I just want to go back for a moment here as a, a launching point today to this story. Elisha was the young man. He was following the old prophet Elijah. And he came to him in Genesis or in 2 Kings chapter 2. And it says, When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, the old prophet said to the young man, Tell me, he said, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? What can I do for you? He said, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. And Elijah said, you've asked a difficult thing. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. Elisha and Elijah, they represent two different generations. The old prophet had an incredible ministry, but his time was, was coming to an end, and Elisha represented the next generation that was going to come up and, and take the baton and carry the message forward. Elisha wanted something. He said, I want a double portion of what you have. I don't know if there's anybody in your life that would represent Elijah this morning, but you look at them and you just say, I want God to do in me what he's done in you. Elijah had the double portion that Elisha desired. But there was something that Elisha had that Elijah desired. While Elijah, the old prophet, carried the double portion, what he really wanted was the double blessing. And the double blessing is when he sees the goodness and the anointing and the power of God not only flowing to his life, but flowing through his life into somebody else. 
Are there any senior saints here that have already decided you don't want to see the church die on your watch? I mean, come on. There's nothing victorious about watching your church just slowly die by attrition as the membership just gets a little older and one funeral after another, the church gets smaller and smaller until finally you find yourself sitting around with a a bunch of folks you've known for 30 and 40 years and the next generation's not anywhere around. How many of you know that's not God's plan for the church? So God needs some Elijahs who will make up their mind to say, I am not going to the grave without finding an Elisha. I'm not going to the grave without finding someone who wants this experience. I I thank God this morning for the gifts of the Spirit in operation. I thank God that, that Sister Nancy would allow the Spirit of the Lord to speak through her prophetically. Acts, or 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Bible says when you pray in the Spirit, you pray the very will of the Father. I thank God for people like that who would allow the Spirit of God to use them and for Ginger to allow the Spirit of interpretation, a gift of the Holy Spirit, to flow through her life. How many of you know there has to come a point in the life of the church where those gifts become manifest in the next generation? I've heard it said all my life, and it's always been true. The church is just one generation away from extinction. Pentecost is just one generation away from extinction. That's why it's important that we create atmospheres like the one that Pastor Chris was talking about up here with Alicia a few moments ago. Atmospheres where young people can come into the presence of God and experience those gifts and speak with new tongues and interpret and operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Elijah and Elisha, the most profound activity in all of the old prophet's ministry, and he had some incredible activity. The most profound was not when he raised up the widow's son from the dead. The most profound work was not the time that he multiplied the oil to provide through the famine. His most profound work was not calling down fire from heaven and standing toe-to-toe against 800 false prophets. The most significant and the most profound activity of the anointing on the old prophet Elijah's life was the moment that he saw that anointing multiplied into the next generation. How many of you understand today that God's plan and purpose for your life, it's bigger than your lifetime? There's a kingdom agenda at work here. And I just wonder if there's any Elishas today, any young men, any young women that would say, I want what God has done in the previous generation. I want that spirit on my life. I want a double portion. And I wonder if there's any seniors here today that would say, I'm looking for some young people that I can invest in. I'm looking for some young people that I can pour into. I'm looking for another generation that I can bless and see a double blessing in my own life. Maybe that's why that when the young man Elisha became the old man, he was so frustrated. I want to show you another story that happened several years later. It's in 2 Kings chapter 13. If you move forward to chapter 13, you find that now 
Elisha is the old man. And the Bible tells us in verse 14 that Elisha's about to die. And it tells us down in verse 20, Elisha died and was buried. But right there between 14 and 20 is a pretty incredible story. So I want you to look at it with me. It says in verse 14, 2 Kings 13, Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. In other words, he's on his deathbed now. But Jehoash, the king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried. The chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, verse 15, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. And when he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Can you see it? The king of Israel has the the bow, and now the old feeble prophet Elisha puts his hands on the king's hands. He says in verse 17, open the east window. And he said, and he opened it, shoot, Elisha said, and he shot The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Now imagine this moment. The king is concerned about the future. He's dependent on this prophet to give him direction and even battle instructions and to give him prophetic insight as to where and when the enemies would attack. And now that the prophet is dying, he realizes that he's going to miss out on a blessing. And he says, oh, my father, my father. And the prophet says, I want you to draw the bow back and I want you to release this arrow. And as he does, he says, that's the arrow of victory. The arrows are going out ahead of you, and victory is going to be yours over your enemy. Now, even if you don't fully understand prophetically what God is doing in this moment, the king had to understand the arrow is significant. The arrow is the arrow of victory. Look at what happens next, though. Verse 18 says, Then he said, Take the arrows. And the king took them. Elisha told him, Strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him. He got angry. And he said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you're only going to defeat it three times. And then the next verse says, and Elisha died and he was buried. What a weird way to go out, right? I mean, honestly, last week we talked about how Elijah went out in a chariot of fire. I mean, you know, God sent a a, a Holy Spirit Uber down and just picked him up. He didn't even die. This is the double portion guy. This is the double blessing guy. And he, he tells the king to strike the arrows, and he strikes it three times, and he stops. He gets mad. And he tells him, you didn't hit the ground hard enough. You didn't do it enough times. And then he dies. What a weird story. But I think it ought to tell us something about our pursuit of the double blessing. 
See, Elisha understood how significant his moment was with the previous generation. Elisha understood what it meant to pursue the prophet Elijah. Three different times, Elijah had told him, you stay here, I'm going over there. And three different times, he said, you're not leaving without me, I'm staying with you. And now he says to the king of Israel, these are the arrows of your victory. God wants to give you victory. Take these arrows and strike the ground. And instead of having the same tenacity, instead of having the same fervor that he demonstrated in his youth, the king of Israel goes, how was that? And he stops. And Elisha's angry. He gets upset and he says, you don't realize what, what you're missing out on. You, you, you just, you want to win the battle today. You want to have peace in your life. But what about your kids? What about your grandkids? You should have beat those arrows into splinters. I said that was your victory. I said strike the arrows on the ground. And Elisha was frustrated because he recognized something. He recognized that what Elijah was able to impart to him in his final days, he would not be able to part into someone else's life. And then there's one more really, really weird story that we get about Elisha before the Bible narrative moves on. <clears throat> Look at it with me. It says, verse 20, Elisha died and was buried. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, Suddenly, they saw a band of these raiders, so they threw the man's body. They didn't have time to bury him, so they just threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Shocker, right? I mean, how many of you think they were a little bit surprised? They're burying their friend or maybe their enemy. I don't know. But when they saw that the enemy was coming, they just threw his body, and when his body hit the bones of the dead prophet, this was maybe years later, when his body hit the bones of the prophet Elisha, the man came back to life. Now, that miracle tells me a couple things. One, pretty incredible, Elisha had prayed for a double portion of Elijah's anointing. Now, I don't know if he kept count on how many miracles he did, I don't know if we have all the miracles that he did in the Bible, but if he kept score, and I like to think he did, Elijah did 14 miracles. Elisha died on number 27. So he died not having gotten to see that last miracle. And yet here he is after he's dead and decaying, and his body's laying in the tomb, and he's looking over the balcony of heaven. Here comes a dead body thrown in his tomb, and boom, the guy gets up and he goes, 28. <laughs> Count it. Count it double portion. I mean, right? I mean, that's pretty awesome. He probably elbowed Elijah. Gotcha. <laughs> right? If it tells us anything, it ought to tell you this today that God's promises can't even be stopped by death itself. Amen? Come on, let's not wait to Easter to get to that good news. The grave can't stop the promises of God. 
But there's something else that I, I think it, it tells us. Because it is a cool story. But on the other side of that coin, I think it's also one of the saddest verses in the Bible. The reason I say it's the saddest is because it communicates to us an incredible missed opportunity. When Elijah was about to be taken up in a chariot toward heaven, he was looking for the double blessing. He was looking for a generation. He was looking for someone that he could see his call and his gift multiplied through. But when Elisha got to that stage of life, he couldn't find anyone. And there the king stood before him, and he was apathetic. He didn't recognize the opportunity that was before him, and he, he tapped the arrows three times. But Elisha went to his grave, and he took the anointing with him. Can I tell you the gift of God is never intended to lie dormant in your body. You don't need it when you leave this place. You don't need that anointing. You don't need that ability. What you need to do is to be able to find somebody that you can pour it into. And the reality is Elisha died and his anointing died with him. It lay dormant in his body. And maybe that's why he was so frustrated with the king, because he couldn't find anyone that was ready to receive and multiply the double portion as a double blessing in his life. See, here's the thing about success. Success is succession. Just think about that for a moment. Success is succession. I, I painted the picture for you earlier of, of a church that is just slowly dying by attrition as it gets older and older and older, and it's a sad day. The reality is we, we are planting churches all over America, but did you know we're closing churches about as fast as we're planting them? Why? Because while one generation is young and has vision and vigor and they're ready to start something new, there's an older generation that's looking around for an Elisha. They're looking for somebody that'll strike the arrows. They're looking for somebody that'll recognize the gift and the call and the quality of what God has done in the previous generation and say, I want to be a part of that. And at the same time, there's a generation of Elishas that are saying, will you give me the blessing? Will, will you give me the opportunity? Will you let me have the double portion? And we need both. I was so blessed last Sunday as we had an older generation standing here in the altar, and we brought the younger generation to stand before them. And one generation laid hands on the next and prayed over them and spoke blessing over their lives because success is succession. I was reminded of this so vividly yesterday as Pastor Chris and Alicia were talking earlier about the Fine Arts Festival. Yesterday, we spent all day running from room to room trying to keep up with uh, a packet of pages of schedules. I loved every minute of it. The busiest I've had to be at a fine arts festival in the seven years that we've been here. As Alicia said earlier, boy, those first couple years were just one or two kids and three kids. And yesterday, boy, we, we had schedule conflict at every turn. We're like, we got to be up here because they're performing. Then we got to be at that end of the church because they're performing. And we're running around, and I'm just loving every, every minute of the chaos. Because I saw a generation rising up who's discovering 
and developing and deploying their gifts and their abilities and their talents. As I saw students uh, enter poetry categories and, and art categories and preaching short sermons and leading in worship and singing songs and all these students are, are saying, is there, is there a blessing for me? Is there an anointing for me? Is there a gift and a call and a purpose and a plan? I believe this next generation is not going to settle for striking the arrows three times. I believe if we'll put the arrows in their hands and tell them this is your victory, they'll beat them things into splinters. See, I think there's a lot of criticism about the next generation, but I think all they really lack is a challenge. God's called them. He's called them into the army of God, and we treat them like Cub Scouts. They need a challenge. That is good. I just thought of that. Somebody write that down. Like, you should be taking notes. (laughs) Elisha was frustrated because he carried his anointing to the grave with him see the double portion that he asked Elijah for was actually the blessing of the firstborn now if you don't really know the culture and context of the Old Testament You'd miss that because they don't use that terminology, but rest assured, that's what he was asking for. When he said, I want a double portion, what he was saying is, I want the firstborn rights. I want the, I want the birthright. I want the double blessing on your life. <clears throat> See, being the first to be born in a Jewish family, it meant something. Now, now we don't have a, a, a correlation to that in our culture. We don't do the birthright thing, right? Because we love all our kids the same, right? We treat them fair and equal. You better. I'm, I'm the second born, so I want, I want my fair share. I'm 50-50. I mean, come on. Well, there's three of us, but I still want my 33.33% repeating. But in the Old Testament, being the firstborn meant you had a birthright. It was a a double blessing. It meant you had special privileges. It meant you had advantages. The firstborn son had been allotted a double portion of whatever paternal inheritance was coming to the family. He was going to get double what everybody else was going to get. If you were the firstborn son, your name was written down in a register. In Israel, they, they they kept record according to the name of the firstborn. And so it was written down in a book. But with all the privileges of being the firstborn, there was also responsibilities. If you're going to be the the firstborn in the home, that means that you're going to be the priest of your home. It means you're going to be the spiritual leader. That means when when your brother acts crazy, you're responsible. You know, some of us, you don't want want firstborn right anymore because you got some crazy family. You're like, they are not my problem. I am not, I do not want that blessing anymore. But that was the firstborn blessing. And responsibility, that you are now going to step in the role of daddy. When he's gone, you're in charge. You're now the man of the house. Everyone's looking to you for spiritual and financial guidance. So when Isaiah, or when Abraham rather received that promise from God, saying, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing to the nations, Abraham then turned around in Genesis 25 and he blessed his son, Isaac. The Bible says in Genesis 25, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. Why? Because Isaac had the blessing of the firstborn. 
And then Isaac, in turn, when he got a little older, he turned around and his heart was to do what his dad did for him. He wanted to bless his son Esau. And the Bible tells us when Moses was asking God, who should I tell the people is sending them to deliver them? God said, tell them the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau sent you. Is that what he said? Some of you are going, that doesn't sound right. You're right, it doesn't sound right. That is not what he said. He said, you tell them the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent you. Why would he say that? Why would he say Jacob? Jacob was not the firstborn. Jacob was the secondborn. I want you to see something with me in Genesis chapter 25. Though Esau was the firstborn, his is not the name that we remember when we think about the blessing of God. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says in verse 29 of Genesis 25. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, his brother Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? I can promise you that sentence haunted him the rest of his life. But Jacob said, swear to me first. And so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and he drank and then he got up and he left. Look at this last sentence. So Esau despised his birthright. You see, having the firstborn privileges and blessing also means you have the firstborn responsibility. And Esau despised his birthright. Esau had this attitude that said, what, what do I care about what dad has for me? I've got needs today. I'm worried about myself. I'm hungry. I'm, I'm tired. I need food. What do I care about looking out for the rest of the family? What do I care about what happens to you or to your kids? I need something to eat. You know, the Bible says in the New Testament that in the last days, people will serve a God who is their own stomach. In other words, they will sell out for their own desires and their own pleasures. They will forfeit their birthright because their stomach has become their God. And that's Esau. Esau said, what does the birthright matter to me? See, the line's long when you say, who wants double blessing? I mean, everybody's getting in that line. But it thins out really quick when you say, who wants double responsibility? Let me tell you why it matters to you today, this thought of the birthright and the firstborn. It should matter to you today because... If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to declare to you, you have the blessing of the firstborn. You have that. It doesn't matter if you were third in your family, second in your family, only child, or one of 15, like my mother-in-law. 
If you're a child of God, you have the blessing of the firstborn. See, the Bible says in Numbers chapter 3 and verse 12, it says that the Lord had said this to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among all the Israelites in place of the first male offspring and of every Israelite woman. Catch that. He said, I've taken the Levites in place of them. The Levites are mine. For all of the firstborn are mine. And when I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel. Whether human or animal, they are to be mine, for I am the Lord. Many of you remember the story. It was the exodus of God delivering the people out of bondage in Egypt. And, and he, through Moses, he sent nine plagues on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians, and their hearts were hardened. And finally, he said, I'm going to send another plague, and this time I'm going to send a death angel. And the death angel is going to pass through, and he's going to take the firstborn of every home and of every animal. He's going to take the firstborn. The only ones that are going to be spared are those that have sacrificed a lamb and eaten the lamb and spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their house. So God said, this is going to be the Passover, because the death angel is going to come to the door, and when he sees the blood, judgment will pass over. Judgment will go around. Listen, judgment didn't just come to the Egyptians because God wanted to deliver the people. Judgment came because God said, the firstborn is mine. And judgment came to every Hebrew house just like it came to every Egyptian house. The only thing that saved them, it had nothing to do with their birth order or their nationality. It had everything to do with the blood of the lamb that was over the doorpost. And that's the same for you and I today. It doesn't matter what family you're born into. Come on. It doesn't matter what your background is. The reality is because of Jesus, you're safe. Because of Jesus, you're saved. And when judgment day comes, it passes over you, not because of your good works, not because of your family background, but because you've put your faith in the blood of the Lamb of God. And God says now, in Numbers, he said, the firstborn are all mine. But instead of taking the firstborn, I'm going to take the Levites instead. The Levites were one of the 12 tribes in this lineage of double blessing coming down from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. And now you have the 12 tribes. And he says, I'm going to take the tribe of Levi. They are going to be representative of the firstborn of all Israel, of all the men and all the women. And so he made the Levites a priesthood. And when you read in the Old Testament about the priesthood, it's the Levites who sacrificed the lamb. And they didn't sprinkle it over the doorpost as they did when they were in bondage. Now they had a tabernacle in the wilderness. Now they had a temple in Jerusalem. And they would take the lamb's blood and they would go in and they would make atonement for the sins of the people. What he was saying is the Levites are now the firstborn. The Levites are the firstborn. Why does that matter to you? Because when you get into the New Testament, Hebrews tells us we have a better covenant. In other words, we don't need a lamb to be sacrificed by a Levite. Why? Well, the Bible explains very clearly why. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 says this. Now there have been many of those priests, the ones I just described to you, since death prevented them from continuing in office. So they just keep getting new priests. But, verse 24 says, because Jesus lives forever, 
He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to completely save those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. If you wonder what Jesus is up to today, that's what he's up to. He lives to intercede for you. He stands. You don't have to sacrifice an animal. Nobody has to sacrifice an animal for you. Jesus' blood was a once-for-all sacrifice, and he stands in the presence of God to intercede for you. Every time Satan wants to count your sins against you, Jesus reminds his Father of the blood. It's not over a doorpost. It's on a cross. He's the high priest. That's what Hebrews tells us. Jesus is our great high priest. Down in verse 27, it says this, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. For first, for his own sins, and then for the sins of the other people. Why? Because he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. Jesus was the great high priest. Jesus was the ultimate firstborn with the double blessing. That's why John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. He's the firstborn over creation, Colossians 1 says. And here's the really good news today. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 about you and about me. It says, but you are a chosen people. Look at this. You're a royal priesthood. That's who God's called you. In other words, because you're saved, it goes on to say that, that he's done this. He's delivered you so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, you were lost, you were broken, but he rescued you and he saved you so that you could declare his praises and he's called you a royal priesthood. In other words, what he's saying is you are now chosen as the firstborn. You're the firstborn. Every Christian, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus now is the firstborn. The Bible says in Romans 8, 17, now if we are the children of God, then we are heirs of God, and we are co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Did you notice it didn't say that, that, that we're the heirs somewhere down the line, down a long list, and maybe there's a little inheritance left for you? No, it said we're co-heirs with Jesus. So every blessing and every benefit that, that Christ has in God, you have in God. I have in God. We are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. This is good news because if the firstborn gets a double blessing and God said the Levites are now gonna be representative of the firstborn and then Jesus came on the scene and said, I'm the great high priest, I'm the firstborn and then he rescued you and he says, you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood and you're the firstborn, that means you get the double blessing. Here's the caution. If you want to have the double blessing, you have to be willing to accept the responsibility of the firstborn. Esau didn't need it. I'm not worried about anybody else. I don't care. I don't care about any of that. I got my own stuff going on. I got my own life I got to deal with. What does birthright 
mean to me? I want to challenge you today to embrace not just the blessing, but to embrace the responsibility that God has given you as the firstborn sons of God. And I want to, I want to end today by just taking you back to a very familiar story in the New Testament. In fact, last Sunday night, my life group, we had several young adults over at our house, and, and we got to talking about this story. And, and I think it communicates something to us about this double blessing that God invites us into. It's in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, in fact, it's in all four Gospels. This story, this miracle of Jesus is recorded more than any other miracle. It's written about six times in the four Gospels. It's the miracle of multiplying the bread and the fish. How many of you heard the story? At least one interpretation of it. Well, I want to look at the one in Mark chapter 6. I think if, if Jesus is going to do a miracle more than once, and the Gospel writers are going to be inspired of the Holy Spirit to tell us about it six times, then there might be something in there that we want to get. And so in Mark chapter 6, it says this in verse 34. It says, when Jesus landed and he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. And so the disciples came to him and they said, this is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late, verse 36. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, don't get ahead of me if you know this story. Let's just give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt here. This sounds like a pretty responsible decision, right? I mean, God forbid that the preacher keep everybody too late and they get hungry, Oh, now you amen. <laughs> so they're looking around, they're going, Jesus, you've been talking for a while. You should probably let everybody go. I mean, you should probably let them go. They're going to have to travel. They're going to have to find something to eat. We've been out here all day. But look at verse 37. He answered them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And they said, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much money on bread and, and give it to them to eat? I mean, bless their heart. They're trying. I mean, they're, 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 they're trying here. They're going, okay, Jesus, he just told us to feed them. How do we do that? So they all pull out their old calculators and they figure it out. We gotta make this happen, man. We gotta do what Jesus said. And then they, they realize this is gonna take half a year's wages. We're gonna, we're gonna spend half the year's budget on one meal. So they come back to him, Jesus, we're looking at the numbers. We just wanna make sure. Are you sure this is what you're telling us? You want us to go and you want us to spend half the year's budget to give them one meal? Is that what you want us to do? Look at what Jesus says. Pick it up in verse 38. 
Jesus says, well, how many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five <laughs> and two fish. I just, I just love this. I mean, I, they're trying. I, I feel bad for the disciples sometimes when I read stories like this. There's over 5,000 people here. And, and it tells us later, that's just 5,000 men. I don't know why, but they didn't count the women and children. People had large families back then. So a lot of theologians believe it was more like 20 to 30,000 people. Huge crowd. Jesus says, I want you to feed them. Whew, that's going to take a lot of money. Don't use the money. Just collect what you have. And then you got to come back to him. Talk about feeling like a failure. Ah, you tell him. You tell him. You t- so Jesus just sees him. How much do you have? Five, five loaves, and then somebody else, and two fish. Like, that, like that's going to help. But look at what it says. Actually, look at what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Jesus looked at him and said, is that all you got? What good are you? It doesn't say that Jesus said, Man, you guys are worthless. I thought you would have come up with more than that. No, look at what it says. Verse 39, then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Can I tell you the first thing that I see here? Jesus takes what you give him. You know what Jesus is not asking you for today? He's not asking you to give him what you don't have. He's, he's, not, he's not saying you should have had more. You should have more talent. You should have more time. You should have more resources. You should have more money. No, he's saying I'll take what you give me. What do you have? Don't tell me what you don't have. I can see how big the need is. What do you have? And Jesus takes what you're willing to give him, but he doesn't just take it. It says he breaks it. He breaks it. And I just want to say prophetically to someone here today that there are some things that God wants to break in your life. Namely, it's this attitude that says what I have is not enough. If you're going to live in a place of double blessing, you're going to have to be willing to step into a place of responsibility. And the lie of the enemy is you don't have enough. Who, how can you be responsible for anybody? How can you be responsible for anything? What needs to be broken is a spirit of poverty, a spirit of lack, a spirit of fear and a spirit of inferiority that would make you to believe that what you have is not even worthy of bringing to Jesus. And if you'll bring what you have, He'll take it, and he'll break it, but then he'll bless it. It says he blessed it. Can I just tell you today, church, that the devil does not want you to accept the responsibility of the firstborn. And the reason he doesn't want you to embrace the responsibility of the firstborn is because he doesn't want you to experience the double blessing of the firstborn. I told you that God's kingdom agenda 
is to bless you so that you can be a blessing. Can I tell you that Satan has a kingdom agenda as well? Satan's kingdom agenda is for you to live broke. That's his plan. I mean, if God wants to bless you to bless others, then Satan would love nothing more than for you to believe I don't have anything to offer. Satan would love for you to believe that I don't have any talent, that what I bring to the table doesn't amount to much, that it doesn't, that it's not important. He would love for you to just live your life with that broke mentality. But it's important to God that you have more than enough. Hear what I'm not saying. I, I'm not saying that, that God wants everybody to be wealthy, that God wants everybody to be rich, that everybody's going to drive new cars and have fancy jewelry. No, no, no. God's plan for you is that you would have more than enough. Because what are the other options? Barely enough or not enough? And how can you bless somebody else if you're barely getting by or going under? So God's plan for your life is to bless you. He wants to prosper you, even as your soul prospers. Let me give you a good, healthy definition of prosperity. Prosperity is having more than what you need to do God's will. Now, for some, that might be a whole lot more. For some, it might just be a little bit more. But prosperity is having more than you need to do God's will. The psalmist said this. He said, my cup runs over. And I just wonder if there's anybody here today that would say, yeah, my cup is running over. I wonder if some of you are shaking the cup to see if there's anything in there. And you're feeling like, I, I don't have anything. God's not meeting my needs. How can I meet anybody else's needs? What you ought to do is just tell them to go somewhere else. That's what the disciples did. Tell them, tell them to go somewhere else, Jesus. They have needs and we don't have resources, so send them away. And Jesus is saying to you and me today, like he said to them, you feed them. You feed them. Bring what you have so that he can break it and bless it and multiply it. You know, the beautiful thing about that story is the miracle didn't happen. The miracle of multiplication didn't happen in Jesus' hands. The Bible says that Jesus broke the bread and the fish, and he gave it to the disciples to distribute to the people, and then all of the people were fed. I don't know how you imagine this story in your mind, but I don't think Jesus broke the bread, and then all of a sudden, he was like under a mountain of loaves and fishes. No, that's not where the miracle happens. He broke one and had two and gave that to a disciple who broke one and had two. And another disciple took one and he broke it. And the miracle happened when people were willing to let God bless them and then bless others through them. The miracle happened when somebody recognized that my little is enough in the hands of God. And the challenge for us today is that you would lean in to the double blessing. That you would lean into sonship to know that you are a co-heir with Christ Jesus and every benefit and promise is yours, but to also lean into the responsibility that comes with that position. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come as we just facilitate a moment of response. I wanna tell you a story that... Uh, my life group and I heard last weekend, 
It was a story about George Jenkins. George Jenkins was the founder of Publix, you know, the grocery store. Very wealthy, very successful businessman. <clears throat> but not only was he wealthy, Mr. Jenkins was exceptionally generous. He gave so much away. I mean, notoriously. He just, he gave away so much of his wealth. When he was on his deathbed, he gave one final interview. And the journalist came and talked to Mr. Jenkins. And the journalist said, Mr. Jenkins, you've been so, you've been so successful. You made so much money. You've made such a career for yourself. But we also know that you've, you've given a lot of it away. I mean, you, you've really just, you've been so benevolent. What we really want to know is, if you hadn't given so much of it away, how much would you really be worth? And he thought about it for a minute. And his answer was, probably not much. Probably not much. Because George Jenkins understood that, that I'm not blessed just because I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be a blesser. And the reason that I've experienced so much of the goodness of God in my life is because I've determined not to just be a, a conduit, to just, you know, grab all I can, can all I get, and sit on the can. He said, no, I want to be a vessel that God can flow through. I'm not going to live my life with clenched fists. I'm going to live them with an open hand. Now listen, don't get nervous. I'm not receiving another offering today, okay? Just some of you need to breathe. I'm talking to you about something so much bigger. I'm talking to you about the favor and the blessing that God wants on your life. I'm talking about a creating a place and a culture in a church where a generation of Elishas can rise up and grab a hold of the double portion. And a generation of Elijahs can reach back and experience a double blessing as they see the goodness of God in their life flowing through another generation. So I'm going to ask you if you'd stand with me all over this room. This worship team is just going to sing a simple chorus unto the Lord. Right where you're standing, I want to invite you to just make an altar before the Lord. And maybe you're here today and you just... You need something broke off of your life. Maybe it's a spirit of fear or inferiority. Maybe it's a spirit of lack, of insignificance. Maybe the, the spirit that has kept you held back is, is just a, a thought that says, I don't have enough. I'm not good enough. I want to invite you to just turn your hands heavenward. And just begin to acknowledge the goodness of God in your life. And tell him today, God, I'll bring you what I have. He's not asking for what you don't have, but I want to challenge you to just pray from your heart, God, I'm going to bring you what I have, Lord.